0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We are in a message series called Unsung Heroes. Last week I spoke on Miriam. The week before that, Pastor Chris spoke on Abigail. And uh, this week we're going to be talking about a new hero in the Bible. And I'm going to be speaking on Esther. Esther. Now, normally, what we've been doing is we've been speaking about those people in the Bible who don't get much airtime. You know, they don't get messages preached about them. And this week, I'm speaking about Esther, you might think, what's the deal here? Because Esther is definitely not an unsung hero. She has a whole book of the Bible named after her. But if you've been following along in this message series, you'll know that there's always a plot twist near the end. And so hang with me, and we'll get to the unsung hero, I promise you. Now, I'm going to blow, like, fly through this story this morning so I can pull some application points out. So I hope you know the story, and you can follow along. I've got illustrations as well to go along with the story, but we're going to start with a little bit of trivia. Does any, any of the kids, Esther was the name, is the name of the book, but do you know what Esther's Jewish name was? Does anybody know? That sounded like a very old kid. That's okay. Hadassah, yes, you're right, Hadassah. And we're going to find out that there's a bunch of different names in the Bible for the same people, and, uh, but we're going to look at that in just a minute. All right. The plot of this story is murder, but it's far more than just murder. It's the annihilation of an entire people group. It's the annihilation of an entire people group, which has happened before. Mike, I might need you to advance my slides for me. There we go. All right. The year is approximately 479 A.D. This really isn't working very well. Did you do that or did I? You did, eh? Hmm. It's going to be hard, eh, if you don't have a copy of my message. Yes, it's going to be very hard. Laser works. Why doesn't this work? We're going to just pause a moment. Normally, I do this kind of thing on the... uh, What are you doing? Oh, you're going to fix it? We'll see. Thanks, Adam. Normally, we do this kind of thing on uh, the 4 o'clock service on Saturday so that we look really good by 9 o'clock. But not today. Today, we look just as bad at 9 o'clock as I did at 4 (laughs) o'clock. All right. The year is 479 BC. That's almost 500 years before Jesus was born. The fierce Assyrian empire that conquered the northern kingdom of Israel is no more. Advance. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire, which destroyed Jerusalem and exiled much of Judah to Babylon, has been conquered. Even the great Babylonian empire is no more. It has been conquered by the Persian empire. And the empire of the Persians was enormous. It was absolutely enormous. It it stretched all the way from the Indus Valley over into northern Africa and up into Greek and even some of the the strange Uzbekistan-type countries of the north. It went around the Caspian Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, and it stretched down into the Persian Gulf. It was huge. And this huge empire had a capital city in Susa. Susa was the capital city. And you'll know and you'll know that um, uh, you can see Susa. It's very, it's very, very dim right there, but you can see it's pointing right there. That tiny red dot that you can hardly see, and the fact that it was so big was a very significant thing because it meant that all the cities of the Persian Empire paid tribute to Susa, making it incredibly wealthy. And all those tributes came essentially under the administration of one man, a king by the name of King Ahazarus. I always snubble over his Hebrew name, so we're going with his Persian name, King Xerxes, which is way cooler. Anybody who has an X or a Z in their name is very cool. And he is King Xerxes, Now, King Xerxes, very wealthy man, that wealth was one of the reasons that things got out of hand in his palace. He decided to invite all the people, all the diplomats and the leaders of the various provinces and cities in the Persian Empire to come and tour the city of Susa so that he could show off his immense wealth. The tour lasted 180 days. I don't have any clue what they could have possibly watched for 180 days. Hey, is it working, Riley? Maybe? Great. Thank you. And after 180 days of touring, they threw a festival to end all festivals. A week-long party. I would appreciate a week-long party this year on March 27th, my birthday. <laughs> I love parties, especially when they result in me giving, getting gifts. I am a gifts guy, so you should remember that. And this year is my 40th birthday, so I'm, like, willing— I, I, this is not in my message, obviously, but I look into the, mor- into the mirror every morning, and I go, go grey already, go grey. My mom went grey at 40, I've got to reach that standard. I want to be grey so bad. So bad. Anyways. <laughs> All right, during the party, There was a lot of drinking, which can never lead to good things. And at the end of the party, King Xerxes decided that he would show off one more part of his kingdom that they maybe had not seen yet, his beautiful Queen Vashti. But you know, there's something about being pulled out of your apartment or wherever you were staying in the palace to be paraded before your husband and all of his friends who had been partying for a week that didn't really sit very well with Queen Vashti. And so Queen Vashti refused to go and see the king. Now, this was a huge insult. And in the Persian culture, if you refuse the king like this, it could lead to your death. And so she was taking her life in her hands to save some dignity. And the king didn't kill her, but he did divorce her and banish her from the palace. It was very harsh. Now, this, of course left King Xerxes without a queen, and and no king should be without a queen, a very beautiful queen. So they began a kingdom-wide beauty pageant. Now, most beauty pageants are voluntary. This beauty pageant was not. And dignitaries and governors and leaders went throughout the country looking for the most beautiful women that could candidate to be the king's bride. One of those was a girl named Esther. Now, Esther's parents were dead... And she had been raised by her older cousin Mordecai. Esther was chosen as a finalist in the king's search for a queen. And she prepared to meet him for 12 months. Get this, 12 months. For six months, she had beautification, perfuming, and oil treatments. And I don't know how bad she must have stank before that she would need a six-month bath. But she did. Precious oils and perfumes. And then she had six months of cosmetic, I was going to say surgery, but not surgery, cosmetic training, where she learned how to put on makeup and and to be very beautiful. At that time, people did not understand that women can be beautiful au naturel without any makeup on. It was shocking and chauvinistic. But for six months, she learned how to do makeup. And then she met the king, and the king chose her out of all the beautiful women in the empire, and palace life began for her. Now, there's an important detail, and we're going to find out there's these little important details hidden throughout the story of Esther, and there are subplots hidden throughout the story of Esther as well. And the first important detail is the fact that Esther kept her ethnicity, her nationality as a Jew, a secret. Mordecai thought this was wise. Now, talking about Mordecai, there was a subplot that happened with him as well. Oh, there are her beauty treatments. Mordecai often hung out near the gates of the palace. And while he was near the gates of the palace one night, he overheard two servants of the king speaking about their desire to assassinate him. Mordecai did what was responsible, and he went to the king or to the king's officials and reported it. And as a result, the king was extremely happy with Mordecai. He wrote his name down in his personal journal and promptly forgot about the whole incident. You wouldn't think that you would forget about somebody trying to assassinate you, but he forgot about the person who would save him. Now, at this point in the story, we meet a new character. His name is Haman. He's the villain. Haman was the second in command over all the Persian Empire, and he was an incredibly arrogant man. All day, he would, when he would walk through the streets, people would bow to him and, and show kindness to him, flattery. And he loved it, except there was one person who refused to bow to him, and it was the Jew, Esther's cousin, Mordecai. And it absolutely ticked him off to no end. It frustrated him that this one arrogant Jew would not bow to this one arrogant leader. And so he went to the king, and Haman, he decided to take revenge as revenge had never been taken before. Killing one person was not enough. Disciplining one person for not bowing to him was not enough. He decided that the entire Jewish nation should be exterminated because of Mordecai's refusal to bow. That is a serious inferiority complex. This man needed Jesus, children. (laughs) He had deep anger. And so what did he do? He twisted the story a little bit. He went to King Xerxes and he said, King, there is a group of people in your empire who do not pay you tribute. They're They don't bow. They don't respect you. I think on a certain day of the calendar year, we should destroy them all. And the the king said, well, that sounds very wise because he trusted Haman, his second-in-command, and said, yes, on such and such a day, all the enemies of the Jews can rise up against them and they can be killed, and the entire national population of Jews would have been wiped out. Now, on the way home, Mordecai was giddy. Because he had just gotten his way. His murderous wish was going to come true. But that giddiness popped like a bubble when he walked past the gates of the palace. And there was that insolent Jew, Mordecai, once again refusing to bow. Haman knew that his fate had already been sealed, but he went home steaming mad. That evening, his wife and his friends came around him, and they said, you know what you should do, Haman? You should build a gallows 75 feet high. And on the day that the Jews are murdered, you should kill Mordecai there. Now, this gallows wasn't just any gallows. It was probably a stake 75 feet high that they would impale Mordecai on. It was a horrible, horrible thought. Who is this man Haman? Have you ever wondered that? What would have caused such deep hatred within him? Well, we're actually told some clues about this who this guy was. Haman was called Haman the Agagite. Agagite. Now, Agagite means that he was in the family tree of a man named Agag. But who is Agag? Well, Agag was actually a fairly common name for the rulers of a particular nation of people called the Amalekites. And if you know anything about your Bible, you'll know that the Amalekites were the sworn enemies of the Israelites. The story goes back all the way to Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the nation of Israel, led by Moses, has just left Egypt. They've wandered through the desert, and they've crossed the Red Sea, and now they've come to the mountains of Seir. And you'll see there's that red spot there. That was the nation of the uh, Amalekites. And what the Amalekites did was they looked at this nation of Israel walking through the desert and they said, we need to destroy them. They had no reason to. The Israelites were not even going to cross their territory. But they said, we have to attack now while they are weak and vulnerable. And so the next day, a very famous battle took place where the Amalekites came down and attacked the, the nation of Israel, and Moses went with two of his, his, uh, his advisors and commanders up onto the mountain, Aaron and Hur. And the story goes that as he raised his staff, his arms above the battle, the Israelites would win. But if they ever lowered, if he got tired, then the Amalekites would begin to win. And so Aaron and Hur came on either side of him and they helped him, Moses, to raise his, you know, 80-year-old limbs over that battlefield so that the Israelites could win. And they did win. But there was a serious consequence for the Amalekites' choice that day. And God made two vows that day. He said, I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Amalek was the name of the man who started the nation of the Amalekites. And he also said, the Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, do you know who Amalek was? This is very interesting as well. He was the grandson of Esau. Esau was essentially the great uncle of the entire Jewish nation. He was the brother of Jacob. And if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, you know that they were fighting from the womb. They came out having sibling rivalry. And when Jacob stole Esau's birthright, Esau went on a murderous rampage. He developed this envious hatred in his heart towards Jacob. And although they mended their ways somewhat later in life, Their two family lines would be at war forever. Always tension. And when Esau separated from Jacob, he moved down to the mountains of Seir. And one of his grandsons was Amalek. And Amalek became the father of the Amalekites, who were an incredibly wicked people. That's why Haman hated them. They had a rivalry spanning centuries. He knew that Mordecai was a Jew. He knew the history of his own people. And he, as the second in command of the most powerful empire in the world, knew that he had an opportunity to right the wrong, the defeat, against the Amalekites, his ancestors, on the battlefield of Raphadim. That's why Haman hated them so much. And so now all the Jewish people in the entire city were facing their death, in fact, the entire empire. And Mordecai sat down with many other Jews and he clothed himself in sackcloth, which is like, like um, kind of rough clothing that showed that you were in mourning. And he covered his head with ashes. And he cried out loudly by the, by the gate of the palace. And certain enough, the attendants of Esther heard that he was crying out. And they, they went to Esther and they said, your cousin Mordecai is wailing. He's grieving at the gates of the palace. And she said, well, go find out what's wrong. And so Mordecai sent a message back and he said, do you not even know that your entire the entire household of the Jews is going to be wiped out on such and such a date? You must go to the king and intercede for us and find out if you can stay his hand against this evil thing that's going to be done. And Esther sent back word and she said, because of Mordecai, if I go before the king without being invited, it is within his power to kill me for that. Mordecai then said one of the most famous lines in Esther. He said this, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the palace. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's house will be destroyed. And who knows, perhaps you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. He said, Esther, what if it was in the good plan That you should save the entire nation. Maybe that's the reason you're the queen right now. And so Esther decides that she will take her life in her hands. And she declares a three-day fast. She requests that all the Jews in the entire kingdom fast for three days for her as she prepares to go and see the king who could kill her for doing so. And on the third day, she walked into the presence of the king and he turned to greet her. Confused, why his beautiful bride, his queen, would be taking her life in his hands—in her hands. Why would she be risking this to come and? See? She must have had something very important to say, and she did. She wanted to invite him to a feast, and knowing that there was probably more going on than a feast, he gladly extended the scepter, gave her her life back, and agreed to come and feast with her. In fact. She invited Haman as well, and she had an idea in mind. Now, they had the first feast, and the first feast was really just a reason to invite him to a second feast, because she had already known that feasting was the gateway to the king's heart. Perhaps she knew men well, right? And between feast one and feast two, though, we have a little subplot take place again. The king one night couldn't sleep. And so he did what any insomniac king would do. He said, "Bring me my boring journals to read to me. Surely, if you read to me something boring, that will put me to sleep." And so they brought the journals of the king to him, and he read, and they were, it was read to him. And suddenly they came to the story where Mordecai had saved his life. and he goes, "I remember that guy. I remember him. Was he ever paid back for what he did? And the guy who was reading the journal says, no, there's nothing recorded. And he says, well, this is not, this is a travesty. So the next day, the king went to Haman. And he said, Haman, what would you do for a man who is so important to the king, who the king wants to show off to all the city, who the king wants to honor in the sight of all men? And Haman goes, it's me. Made a very bad assumption. And he said, what I would do is I'd put the king's royal ring on his finger. I'd put the royal robe on his shoulders and I'd put him on the royal donkey. Because that is nothing but a noble beast. <laughs> and you should hee haw him through the entire city, proclaiming that this is what the king does for those he favors. And the king looked at Haman and said, Do it for Mordecai. And Haman had to eat it. <laughs> And he led Mordecai, his mortal enemy, through the streets of the capital city while people cheered him on. And I can just imagine in his mind, he's counting down the days to the death of this man who'd humiliate him so greatly in front of the entire city. Second feast came. At that feast, Esther waited for an opportune moment. And then she said, King, There is a reason that I've invited you here. And he said, what is it? I'll give you anything you want, up to half the kingdom, 49%. I'll keep 51%. (laughs) And she said, my king, there is a plot to destroy not only me and my nationality, but all the Jews in the entire nation. And the king was enraged. He said, Who would have possibly done this? And we already know he's got a bad memory. And so she said, It was him. Ah, <laughs> oh, it must have felt so good. <laughs> and the king looked at Haman, and Haman went as white as a ghost the king then stormed out of her room onto the terrace and it says that haman threw himself at esther's feet begging for mercy well this looked very bad it looked like haman was trying to seduce the queen when the king walked in he said will you not even plot ag- will you not only plot against the queen and her people will you now try to seduce the king's own queen in her own palace and then haman was sentenced to death And he was sent back to the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai and was killed upon them. But there was still a problem because the edict of the king was still in place that the Jews would be killed on such and such a day. And the king was so worried and troubled by it because he knew that according to Persian law, even he could not revoke a decree that he had made. There were limits to his power. So instead what he did was he wrote up a new decree and he said, on such and such a date, when the Jews should be exterminated, the Jews can arm themselves and rise up against their enemies. And that's exactly what happened. And on that day, when that day came, the Jews were not killed. The enemies of the Jews were put to the sword, and it became a great day of liberation for the Jewish nation, which is still celebrated to this day on a feast called Purim. And Purim, when it's celebrated, they remember what Esther did on behalf of the entire Jewish nation. So Esther's life was saved. Mordecai took the place of Haman. And then the Bible goes silent. It's one of the last stories we have in the Old Testament. And it's a beautiful way to end. Did I leave out any details? I don't think I did but I know that someone did. There's one detail that is left out of the book of Esther. Do you know what that detail is? Does any kid, kid in here know what detail was left out of the book of Esther? Nobody? Oh, good. Then I'll teach you. God. God's left out of the book of Esther. Did you know that not one time do they mention God or Yahweh ever in the book of Esther? Now, I have a question for you. If God is left out in name in the book of Esther, does that mean that he's not there? Does it mean that he's not there? Not a chance. Because there are all sorts of things that are there that we actually don't think of all that often. And I have a little um, a little experiment I'm going to show you just to illustrate this. And you know, I was thinking about it this week because when I was about the age of grade four, 10 years old, my pastor, Terry Caitler at Fourth Avenue Bible Church in Niverville, I remember he did this experiment on stage. Now you know what's interesting? There is air all around us, and yet we don't often think about it. You breathe in, you've breathed in a hundred, maybe a thousand times today already. (sighs) Didn't even think about the oxygen that was keeping you alive. And you might not know this, but the air presses down upon us. And that's called air pressure. And the air pressure around us has a great impact on us. Yesterday I had a migraine. It's because there was high pressure. It affects our bodies sometimes. It certainly affects the weather. In winter, if there's high pressure, it means it's going to be cold and clear. If there's low pressure, it means we could have a storm. Air pressure affects the weather, even though you don't think about it. We notice the air when it's moving, right? When the air is moving from a place of low pressure to high pressure, that creates wind, and then you notice it because it blows on you and it feels good. We notice it when it's very humid because we sweat buckets, or at least I do. But normally, we don't think about it. Now, in this bottle, I have a hard-boiled egg here and a bottle. It doesn't quite fit through. There's air pressure, and it makes a good seal. So there's pressure inside and outside, but it's equal. And so if you try to push the egg in, it doesn't go. But there's a way to remove the air pressure from within the bottle. We can heat up that air, and it will rush out of the bottle, and then the the low pressure, well, actually, the high pressure from outside the the bottle will push the egg into the bottle. And it really works. At least it did yesterday. And if it doesn't work today, it's a faulty egg. Bad science. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to light this piece of newspaper on fire, which you should never do inside with smoke detectors and sprinklers. (laughs) And then I'm going to put the egg on top while it's burning in there. And if we're lucky, this didn't work yesterday, but if we're lucky, if I put it on in time, you're actually going to see the egg vibrate. It'll go like that as the air rushes out as it's heated up. Okay, so let's see if we can get this to work. I'm going to try and do this while burning myself also. Also, a very good idea to not burn yourself when you light things on fire. Okay, so we drop that in. Work! (laughs) Bad egg. Maybe it wasn't sealed quite enough, I don't know. We'll try again. If this doesn't work, I don't know what we're going to burn next. (laughs) We're going to burn something, though. (laughs) (laughs) The egg had a little divot in it, and so I don't think it was creating a good seal. I think that's what it was. You uh, don't. It stays in there forever. (laughs) There is a way to get it out. I saw it on a YouTube video. The guy took this to his mouth and blew really hard into it to increase the air pressure inside, and then it popped out right in his face, and he got a big mouthful of ash. (laughs) And so, while that would be hilarious for you, I decided to forego that part of the experiment, and I will cut that out later. But you see, there's air pressure. So just because God isn't mentioned in a story is doesn't mean the least that he's not there. There's all sorts of things around us that we don't usually notice that are there. And in fact, when you know how to look at these stories, you can find Jesus in them. And I want to show you just three ways that you can find a picture, not Jesus himself, but a picture of Jesus in the story of Esther. Just a picture. There's three ways that we find Jesus in the book of Esther. The first way is this, the three days of death. You know, from the moment that Esther determined in her heart that she would go to the king, she was as good as dead. You know that? As soon as she told Mordecai, yes, I will go and intercede for the Jewish nation, as soon as she said that, she said, my life is not worth it. I will lay it down willingly. And three days after they fasted for her, what happened? The king extended that scepter and restored her to life. You know, I know somebody else who is dead for three days and then was brought back to life. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is recounting the story of Jesus' death, and he says he was buried and he was raised from, from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. And you know why I underlined that part? Because the scriptures that he's talking about are not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not the scriptures to them at that time. The scriptures that Paul is talking about are the Jewish scriptures. The Old Testament. Now think about that. He's saying that Jesus was buried and raised from the dead on the third day just as our Jewish scriptures told us. How is that possible? It's possible because they knew their they knew their Bibles. They knew that when they have a a story like Esther, where she dies and is raised back to life, sort of figuratively, three days later, they know that that's a picture of Jesus, as the scriptures said. It was a prophetic picture that was yet to come. That's the first place that we see this little hint of Jesus in the book of Esther. And then there's this one, the failure of revenge. Oh, I love it so much. It's such an ironic story. The thing that's supposed to happen to the bad guy happens to, or the thing that's supposed to happen to the good guy at the bad guy's hands happens to the bad guy. That's just good storytelling, isn't it? The failure of revenge. Haman wanted to not only kill Mordecai, but everybody. So he designed a tool in which to kill him, and that ended up being the method of his own death. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, it says this, speaking about God's hidden mystery, the cross. They say, but the rulers of this world have not understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. Do you know that the devil thought he won when Jesus died on the cross? The devil thought he won. The devil was manipulating the situation he thought, pushing Jesus towards that horrible execution, and the very place that Jesus died became the place that death was defeated. The very means by which the enemy was going to thwart God's plan for all time became the ultimate thwarting of his own actions. And Paul is saying here, if the rulers of this, of this world, now he's not talking about kings and queens. He's talking about the demonic forces, the, the princes, the authorities of the heavenlies. It's the spiritual war that he's talking about. If the spiritual rulers, the dark rulers of this world had understood it, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. They wouldn't have done it if they had known it was their own suicide and defeat. So we have even a picture of the devil in the story of Esther, represented by that man of an ancient race. And then we have the ruler's scepter. Now, this one I just love. The ruler's scepter. In the Bible, a scepter is a very important symbol of authority. There's a place in Genesis 49 where Jacob has his 12 sons around him. And those 12 sons are going to become the 12 tribes of Judah, or the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Judah is one of them. Judah's not the oldest, but he's a very important one. And he's prophesying over Dan and over over Benjamin and over all of these guys. And then he gets to Judah. And he says this about Judah. He says, The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So what he's saying here is there's a scepter, a ruler among the tribes of Israel. And that ruler's scepter is going to be in the tribe of Judah. They are going to have the authority of a ruler. Now, what was one of the important authorities of the ruler? One of the important authorities was the fact that they could carry out capital punishments. In other words, they could carry out, uh, they could judge crimes that would result in the death penalty. In other words, whoever had the scepter had the power of life and death. That's what it means. And the Jews, then, the tribe of Judah, would have the power to carry out life and death until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. Who ultimately was going to hold a scepter with the power to give life and death? Well, it was Jesus. And we read about that. In Revelation, there's two passages where it talks about his scepter. In Revelation 12, verse 5, it says, But, he, but she, that's Mary, gave birth to a son, a male, who's going to shepherd all the nations with an iron scepter. An iron scepter. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne because he was a ruler. That's why he had a scepter. And he was going to use that scepter in some places to crush the nations and in other places to give them life. And then in Revelation 19, verse 15, it says this, a sharp sword came out of his mouth that that symbolizes the power of Jesus' words. So that he might strike the nations with it, he will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. Now, what's really interesting to me is that Jesus already has that iron scepter. And what's fascinating is that the Jewish people in history lost the right to carry out capital punishment. You know when? In approximately 6 A.D., approximately 6 AD is when the Jewish nation lost the right to carry out capital punishment for themselves. And see, this is really interesting because even though they were conquered by other empires, they were always able to sort of govern on their own until a certain Roman came in charge and he removed the right for them to carry out capital punishment for their own nation. And it says in Jewish tradition that at that point, the rabbis tore their clothes because they thought that the prediction of Jacob had been broken they said the scriptures tell us that we will be able to rule with our own scepter until it comes to whom it belongs but no one has come oh but in 6 AD there was one he was just a boy But he would grow up to be a man and die on the cross and eventually get the father's scepter to rule the nations with. He, isn't that incredible? How history works? And the Jews who still don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah still mourn the fact that they lost the ability to carry capital punishment under the Roman Empire. But we shouldn't be surprised. Because People miss Jesus all the time. Do you know, this isn't the only place in Scripture, in the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament, where Jesus is hidden. He's hidden all over the place if you know how to look. When I learned this in Bible school, suddenly reading that Old Testament took on new adventure. I remember reading, I was traveling between semesters, I was on trains and stuff like that, traveling by myself through Europe, and I was reading the book of Jonah. Did you know that in the book of Jonah, there are pictures of Jesus Christ hidden within that book? The really obvious one is that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, right? That's obvious. But it's really fascinating, because when he prays, he faces, it says that from within the belly of the whale, I'm not sure how he knew which way was was, uh, towards Jerusalem. But he faced Jerusalem, it says. And it said seaweed wrapped itself around his head. Why do you think that detail is in there? Because it's a picture of a crown of thorns that would one day be around the head of our Savior. And if you read Jonah carefully, you'll find Jesus all throughout. If you read the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, you'll find Jesus. It's so wonderful. I don't have time to go into all of them. But people still don't see it They don't see the prophetic nature of the Bible, where the Bible predicts the future, sometimes in a riddle, sometimes in a mystery. And then when we see it, we go, ah, there's an adventure here to be had, a treasure hunt that I didn't see before. But why should this surprise us? Even the experts of the law in Jesus' day did not see it. And Jesus had harsh words for them. Look what he said in John 5. Pardon me. In John 5, this is what he says. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures, that is the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. He says, don't think that I will accuse you before the father it is moses who will accuse you yes moses in whom you've placed your hopes if you really believed moses you would believe me because he wrote about me moses who wrote the first 5 books of the bible had a messiah in mind and through the inspiration of the holy spirit wrote down stories where prophecies were hidden and embedded so that it should have alerted the people who studied that law to recognize Jesus, and they completely missed it. But now you know. Now you know that even in a book like Esther, where God is never specifically mentioned, he is still there hidden within the words and the pictures, prophetically pointing towards a time in the future, some 700 or 600 years later, when he would be born. Incredible. Just incredible to think about. I'm going to pray for you because I want you this week to see those old stories with new eyes, searching for the Messiah who was prophesied through them at the pen of Moses and the prophets and the chroniclers and the psalmists. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you put these stories in the Bible, these historical accounts, so that people can see you. And Father, I pray for our Jewish relatives, distant relatives who, know, who don't know you and recognize you yet. I pray that as they read their scriptures, they would fall in love with the one to whom the scepter belongs. I pray the same for each of us that our children this week as we take them through these magnificent stories of redemption, that we would be able to un. Unravel that mystery of Jesus, the story of Jesus before he was even born. I pray, God, that we would fall in love with you all over again this week, the great unsung hero of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.